15. Uh, briefly, to uh, sum up some things we've covered to this point, Paul starts off in the first few chapters, uh, sums up both Jew and Gentile as sinners, uh, makes it clear that the Jew, although he had the law, did not perfectly keep the law. He also makes it clear that although the Gentile did not have the law, that he had a conscience. And he's made an image of God, and, and he actually had the ability of his inner nature to discern the things that were right in Romans 2, 14 through 16, so that he would stand uh, condemned or excused on the basis of his own conscience. And he even said about God that the Gentile who did not have the revelations of the Jew, that the invisible God was so declared by the things that are that man was without excuse and not believing any. And so this, the end result is to say that the Jew... Even though you did not have the, the Jewish scriptures, you had enough information to believe in a creator and to recognize certain moral truths that you have not even lived up to your own conscience and you stand condemned uh, to die based on your own sin. And you Jews, even though you had the law, you didn't keep it, you stand condemned to die based on your own sin. All right, after he sums up all of us, the whole world, Jew and Gentile, as sinners, then he proceeds in to salvation by grace through faith in Christ. In other words, what he's established in the first three chapters is the need for Christ. Uh, and so remember the Jews were glorying in the law. And, and he makes, he's going to make it clear throughout this book that there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is absolutely perfect, the psalmist said, and you can't improve on perfection. The problem was man. And so he's saying that all needed something. And so then, uh, since man at his best fell short, the only way he could be saved was in an atonement process that God worked out through his grace and would impart it to man based on his trust. And so then he talks about the goodness of God that's revealed in Christ. Uh, like in Romans 5, he said, you know, somebody might die for a good man, for adventure, for a righteous man, somebody might die. But he said, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And the end result, he said, was that the love of God should be shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In other words, that, that uh, the impact of this information, that at a time when we were enemies of our Creator and had sinned against Him, that He loved us so much that He gave Jesus for us, the impact of that, as the Holy Spirit gives that information, uh, should be to shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. All right, then... Having established the fact that you are saved by grace through faith, Paul knows the arguments that have gone out from the Jews against this teaching. And they're making such statements, well, if, if we're saved separate from the law, then let's just go ahead and sin and let grace abound. And so Paul tackles that next. He anticipates. He knows what they're saying. He knows what they're thinking. And so in the sixth chapter, he tackles that concept. And he says, uh, you know, that shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. In other words, that God forbid that anybody uh, would, would come to that kind of a conclusion based on what I've said on salvation by grace through faith. And then he drives home the fact that, number one, when we enter Christ, we have died to sin. And that the water baptism actually is a picture of our death to sin and our burial and our resurrection to walk in newness of life. And so then his, his question would be, uh, if we have literally died to sin and buried a dead person, and now we're walking in newness of life in Christ, why in the world do we want to sin? Well, the obvious answer should be that we don't. That's absurd. There's no, in other words, that would be a contradiction to say that, that I have repented, crucified myself, died to sin, buried and rise to walk in newness of life and then I want to sin that's that's ridiculous so then he goes ahead and says sin will not reign in our bodies the reason is not that we have somehow become perfect we have not but we have a perfect leader a perfect savior and and we're his servants and so as a result of being his servants although we are imperfect and we make mistakes and we fall short Sin will not dominate and reign over us because that we are following. It's like saying maybe that uh, that although you'll never be the perfect ball player, 
if you're practicing and you're shooting in that direction, uh, you are going to be pretty good. You're sure going to look a lot different than the individual that doesn't practice and shoot in that direction. So he's still saying that, that with our eyes on Christ and all, there ought to be a big difference between us now and when before we became Christians. Okay, now he launches into the seventh chapter and uh, he tackles this concept again of the law and he doesn't, after saying all that he said, he doesn't want to anybody to think that God has given us a law that has anything wrong with it. And I believe still there are New Testament Christians that misrepresent God's law. There's nothing wrong with God's law. Uh, Paul said in Romans, the seventh chapter, that the law was perfect, it was holy, it was right, it was good, it was spiritual. Uh, the problem was sin within us. And so the, the, that which is good became death to us, not because it was bad, it's right and good, but because you and I fall short of it. And so then he said uh, he recognized that, that he had these temptations that he didn't in his own self, that we, we fall short of this thing that we know is perfect. And so he said, wretched man that I am, what are we going to do? So here we are. We know God's law is perfect. And yet we look at ourselves and we realize we're imperfect. So he said, thanks be to God, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, what was nailed to the cross, according to Paul, was not God's perfect law. What was nailed to the cross was this idea of justification by law. And really, even in the Old Testament, nobody was ever justified by law, even though some of, some of the Pharisees seemed to, seemed to think that. But what this idea in Christ became sin in our stead, and took our sins upon him. And so that made it possible that we didn't have to live our lives in the condition that Paul pictures in Romans 7, walking around, wretched person, what, the, what am I going to do? I know that God's law is perfect, but I always fall short. Now, that as a result of being able to be justified in Christ, I can on the one hand rejoice in God's perfect law, but I don't have to be down on myself because I fall short. I can just strive and yet constantly confess my sins and always repent, and the blood of Christ will constantly cleanse me with that kind, with that kind of an attitude. And that's what he drives home through the 8th chapter. In the ninth, 10th, 11th chapter, he deals with the providence of God and how that God all the way through has been bringing his will about. And he says, uh, God even raised up Pharaoh and providentially brought him to a certain point, knowing all the time he was going to knock him down and put him in his place and, in order to make a name for the true God. Uh, I believe that God providentially raises up Saddam or Hitler or whoever. They are what they are based on their own deeds. But keep in mind, God could have taken their life anytime he wanted to. And God allowed them to reach a certain prominence and all. And, and there's, that, that there's things that God, and I think in the final analysis, whether it was World War II or whatever that happens or how ugly it is, in the final analysis, that what is right continues to win out. Uh, I know when I look at something like Saddam and what he stands for, it just makes me love what is right and appreciate other, the opposite that much more. And I believe that maybe that after a lot of him over there, that some of those people are, are, going, to feel, are going to feel the same way too. But anyway, that he points out that God providentially has always worked. And, and in Romans 8, chapter, he says, God causes all things to work together for the good for those that love the Lord. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become heirs of eternal life. Uh, he's saying that God has perfect knowledge. And those people that he foreknew, he has predetermined uh, that those that he knew that would love Christ, he's already predetermined to save them. It doesn't mean that God has caused anybody to be any way, but just that God knows in advance. And so God knew that a certain percentage of mankind would love him and would respond, and so he predetermined that those that did love him uh, would wind up saved in Christ, and he would providentially work on their behalf. All right, then the 12th chapter, he then deals with what is your response to this? Well, then your, your, your response is, is, is that your reasonable response is to that you ought to present yourself as a sacrifice to God, uh, your body as a living sacrifice. So he says that presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God is our reasonable response to everything that God has accomplished, giving Christ his providential care, all of his wisdom, his working things out for the good of those that love him, uh, the natural response. And so it's it's not do, it's not live godly or, or I'm going to burn you or anything like that. It's living godly ought to be your natural response. 
uh, to all that God. And so the motivation for Christian living uh, comes from understanding the love of God that's displayed in Christ and the fact that God has always providentially worked on behalf of those that love him. And that, that inward response, I mean, ought to motivate us, he says, to want to serve. And then he talks about some things that are involved in being the type of person that God would have us be. Okay, then, last week, we finished up in the 14th chapter dealing with some problems that happened among Christians. I mean, he's talked about God and the missing life, and the church at Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles from different backgrounds, and they had different biases and different prejudices, and, and they had different attitudes about uh, eating meats and shopping in the marketplace and, and things of this nature. And so Paul made it clear that even though you have these differences, everybody ought to follow his own conscience. He made it clear that what he believed was right on, on the particular point, but he said those things should not be a matter of division among you, that you could be uh, unified and grow in one spirit, and, and all the time that you, you're growing and developing, if you have a certain type of attitude and all, that you can handle these things. In fact, the, uh, he's going to start in the 15th chapter saying the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. So in the 14th chapter, he deals with some Christians that have some misunderstandings, some that have a better understanding. He says one shouldn't judge the other, the other shouldn't look down on the other. That there is room within the Christian system for somebody to have a better understanding than somebody else, and for them still to work together and to respect one another's consciences and mature and grow together. All right, now, as we get into the 15th chapter, he says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, okay, and to build them up. Now, I want to go ahead and let's start there. Uh, Barbara, we'll start over with you. Let's read through that uh, 15th chapter and then discuss it. The 16th will go real quick because that's just his uh, greetings at the end of the chapter, and we can glance over it very quickly and notice a few things, but most of our time will center right here on the 15th chapter. Okay. We who are strong ought to bear the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we now have hope. And God, who gives you endurance and encouragement, gives you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Except one Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews, on the height of God's feet, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will send hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all the Gentiles, and sing praises to him and the prophets. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to the Lord of the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope be with you all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete knowledge, and constantly instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some point, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glorify in Christ Jesus, my servant to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leaving the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Olympia, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel of Christ in front of 
so that I would not be building someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not called without him will see, and those who have not, under, have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. And now there is no more place for me to work in these regions, until I have in mind the new years to see you, and plan to do so when the boat is coming. Most of this you are passing through, and have your assistance in the family that I have in Jewish attendance. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the sunset. The Macedonia and Asia will place the next contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were placed to do it, and indeed they were to do it. If the Gentiles have shared in the Jewish official blessings, they ought to do to share with them the material blessings. So I have completed this task, and I have made sure that they have received this fruit. I will go to Spain and do this in my blood. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessings of God. I urge you, brothers, and I will go through this path, but by the love of the Spirit, Join me in my struggle and to God for pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers and the that you have. My service and devotion may be accepted to the saints that so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you to the flesh. The God of peace be with you all. Okay, now notice as we start uh, that the as we pointed out all the way through here, chapter headings are misleading. Paul didn't write 16 chapters; he wrote the letter of Romans, and so every statement needs to be looked at within its context. And so when he says, like in verse one, "We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves," and so the question becomes, what is he really saying there? When we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, and each one should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. Uh, okay? <clears throat> In the context there, we're right through, we've just had the 14th chapter, and Paul has dealt with uh, one group of Christians that had a better understanding uh, than another group. And yet uh, another group, even though they didn't have as good an understanding, he said that they ought to follow their own, their own conscience. Don't pass judgment on the other fellow, but follow your own conscience. He says, says to this group, don't you judge him. But yet Paul made it clear that there, there, was, a diff, there was one there that was, was accurate and, and the other was not. Then after that, we have this statement that uh, we who are strong, Paul's strong person there was not one who necessarily had more faith in Jesus than the other. We notice in that 14th chapter that each of these groups had equal faith in Jesus. In fact, he said that the person that uh, ate whatever it was or didn't ate, each of them, the, the person that ate something that another person couldn't, he was giving thanks to God, and the person that didn't eat was not doing it because of his belief in God. So he said, you can't either one of you have belief in God. And then of the various days that he was talking about there, Again, he says, whether the person was specifically observing this particular day, he was doing it because of his belief in God. And yet the other one that was counting all days the same, it was his understanding there on that. And we noted that the Jews had all kinds of various feast days, and like we've got Thanksgiving and things like that, and they continued to observe uh, these various things. But the Gentiles had a lot of different feast days and all also. And so... He deals with, with that thing from the standpoint of, listen, each of you believe in God, each of you love God, and there was a right understanding there, and he wanted those to get along, uh, even though they differed on those points. All right, his strong person among those two who equally believe is the one who has the better understanding. And so there, there are those that here that have a more mature understanding of the gospel, the, the, good, the good news. And the weak there were those that, <coughs> pardon me, uh, had faith and all, but they simply didn't have as good an understanding. In other words, they, they honestly, for them to, to eat some of these things uh, that the others could eat, would have, was sinful to them, and they couldn't do it, even though Paul said that uh, the kingdom of God was not eating and drinking and whatnot, you know, that it had to do with righteousness and goodness and joy in, in the Holy Spirit. 
And so that you have his per this person that has a better understanding and all is a stronger person. The other person uh, was the, the person that didn't have as good understanding. But he says, we who are strong ought to bear with that. And each of us should please his neighbor. Remember what Paul said? If eating meat will cause my neighbor to stumble, then I won't eat it. You know, it's no big deal to me. He said, if, it, if it's, uh, and of course, in his my understanding of the context is that it shouldn't, to stumble, it would have to be done in such a way as to try to pull this other person in to do something to defy his own conscience. In other words, uh, it's a misuse of that to say that you can never do something that somebody else uh, differs with. Uh, I mean, if we're going to want do that, then if we're around uh, some uh, uh, Mennonites, for example, we would have to all wear nothing but black and paint our cars uh, black and live in a live in a certain way and and all like that. But on the other other hand, it, it's not it's not that. But on the other hand, we should not try to cause another person to do something to defy his conscience if he actually feels that that is the better approach and in good conscience uh, he cannot do otherwise, then I shouldn't want him to defy his conscience and I need to respect his conscience. And, all. and, when, and if he ever does differently, let it be because he's learned and agrees with it and can, and can do it in good conscience. In fact, uh, look at verse 23 in chapter 24. The man who has doubts is condemned to be eats because he's eating not of fun faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So, Chapter, uh, the right before it, verse twenty. Uh, Fourteen. Yeah, right, right before it. And so, his weak and strong person here was one had a better understanding of the others, and yet even though you might have a better understanding than somebody on some point, you can still respect his conscience. He can respect you. You can each not judge, not judge one another, or insult one another, or anything like that. And you can look on yourself as a servant. Uh, of the other person. And I think that there's a lot to be learned here. In fact, notice what he's going to say right here in verse uh, 7. No, verse 5. Uh, talking about give you a spirit of unity. Well, obviously, when he talks about this spirit of unity, he's not talking about a unity that's based on everybody understanding everything exactly the same because they didn't have that, and that's just what he's been arguing about that they could have a spirit of unity even though everybody didn't have the same level of understanding in, 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 that, in that particular point. And I think uh, what he deals with is very important there because I think it personally that one of the reasons for the various divisions in the Christian world, I know there's a number of different reasons, but one reason is an attitude that in order for us to to have a spirit of unity and to be able to work together, we have to agree on every single solitary point. Well, there's no question that there's not ten truths on every point, that there's only one truth. But we've already noted all through Romans that man is imperfect. And he's not just imperfect morally, he's imperfect in knowledge. And when he comes into Christianity, he has different biases and different prejudices, and we've been brought up in different ways. And so these truths of the New Testament we come to better understand them as we study all our lives. And you're never going to have that one time. Here you are, you've got a church, and this guy's been a Christian for 10 years, and this one five years, and this is brand new. This guy's been brought up in a Christian family. This guy's been brought up as, as an absolute pagan, you know. This person was brought up in this denomination. This one was brought up in this one. Now, this one was brought up as a Muslim. This one as a Jew. And yet each have been convinced that they need Christ. Each have been convinced that they're sinners. Each have been convinced they need to repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus and be saved by grace through faith. That is the great concept that they can understand and be unified on. Now, the, the, this, this, uh, these, this rest of the material that Paul is dealing with here is something that they're going to study, like he said, go preach the gospel to all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so after these people were converted on Pentecost and all these other places, then they would spend years and years and years studying and more improving their information. Uh, uh, there's no better example than Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts and in chapter 15. Here are those 3,000 people are converted and are in Christ. And between there and 15, thousands of others are converted. 
beginning with the 10th chapter, we have Gentiles coming into the boat. And here we are in chapter 15. Scholars tell us about A.D. 49, at that big conference in Jerusalem, 16 years after Pentecost. And what do we have in the church going? A big debate. They got, they're, 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 they got a big debate going. And so they're all, all of them, why are they there in the first place debating? What's the, what do they differ on and what do they have in common? They all believe in Jesus. They all believe in the one true God. They all believe in Jesus. They all believe their salvation is in Christ. But they have some differences about binding certain points of the law of Moses on the Gentiles. And so there's, there's differences there. So what we see in the book of Acts is that people come in and we see a period of years of discussion and growth and debating and things like that as they continually grow in Christ and present that message. Well, the church at Rome was composed of Jew and Gentile, people of all various backgrounds, and we've already noted here that they had different opinions on this. There was a truth. But the point is, truth is something that you study and become aware of over a period of time. You just don't instantaneously learn the truth on every single point. In fact, we've all been Christians here for different levels of time, but uh, why are we studying the Bible book by book in the first place? I mean, even when we uh, don't have anybody here that's not a Christian, why in the world do we take the time on Saturday night and on Wednesday night and on Sunday morning and, and engage in Bible studies and study these books that we have studied. I mean, after all, we're studying, we've been studying Romans for, what, about three months now? Is there anybody here that hadn't studied Romans before or been in a class situation? Why are we doing it? Obviously, if we felt that every one of us had the absolute perfect understanding of every single solitary doctrine and verse in the book of Romans, and all these others, then we would be wasting our time, really. I mean, that, that uh, you'd, you'd, just, you'd just be waste, wasting your time unless you had somebody here that's not a Christian and you're going on with, with that person. But in most of our Bible studies in the church building, there are very few non-Christians there. That's Christians meeting and, and studying. So the very nature of a Bible study says that we recognize that we all need to learn more and, and we need to grow. So Paul here is calling for a spirit of unity uh, from within this framework. And, and uh, maybe a good example we can see in what's going on in our country right now. Uh, that um, I, I've been very impressed, and I'm not too often impressed with our senators and congressmen, but I've been very impressed. I don't know what will happen. But so far in that once they had that vote and they made the decision as a group, that even those who were against uh, going to war over there, they have supported the effort, and they've all they're they they they're calling for unity within the country, and that it's like that whether the Republicans or Democrats, conservative or liberal, were all unified in 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 that effort over there. Well, even though we have a multitude of differences in this country, there's one thing that we're all in agreement on, and that's the concept of freedom and justice for all. Uh, you're just not going to, every, de every Democrat believes it, every Republican believes it, every in the independents believe it, the conservatives believe it, and the liberals, the freedom and justice for all. Now, we may have different understandings of some of the particulars in there. How much freedom do you allow somebody to have? Where do we draw the lines? Uh, what exactly is fair? And so when you get into specifics, when do we go to war? Do we hold sanctions for another year? But the concept of freedom and choice and electing your government and justice, we're all in agreement on. Well, in the same vein with Christianity, all the time we're studying the book of Revelation and all the time we're studying various other things. And, and we have some honest differences because of our own different degrees of information, different biases and all. We can still have a spirit of unity based on our common conversion to Christ our knowledge that he is our savior, uh, the knowledge that that way of life is the way that God wants us to live, and the knowledge that, that everybody out there in the world needs Christ. And our, miss on, our differences on some passages in Revelation or Jude or some other book has, is not going to hurt anybody out there. 
from of the knowledge that they need to get into Christ and have the remission of their sins and begin a godly life and a study of their own. So we can have all the time we study and learn more in those areas, we can have a spirit of unity that allows us to go ahead and do those areas. And again, in order to have this, notice what he says now, you have to have the strong oath to bear with the failings of the weak. Uh, you need to be concerned about building others up. Uh, we don't need to be concerned with just pleasing ourselves. He says, even Christ did not please himself. We need to be concerned about others. So if I have an attitude that, uh, that at, at any given moment, everybody's going to have to agree with me on every single solitary point, or if I spend as uh, umpteen hours studying some book and, and come to a little better understanding than somebody else, and then I'm going to get disturbed at him because he just doesn't grab it right away, or, or whatever it may be, or this person who hasn't studied the material and, and he's going to stand up and raise his finger in judgment every time somebody who study comes to understand something different than the way he's been schooled in his past. If we're going to have that kind of attitude, then we can't have a spirit of unity. And all we're going to have is, is something that really looks ugly uh, to society and is not really a pleasant experience as you, as you live your life. I think that there's a whole lot there that Paul is trying to get across in a certain type of attitude that we can have all the time that there are certain differences among us. And notice there, the weakness that's we're bailing with, that we're putting up with in one another is not moral weaknesses. Uh, we know Paul told, look at the church at Corinth, he condemned them for ignoring adultery in their midst and got all over them and said not even to associate with somebody that was going to be an adulterer or a drunkard or something like that. So Paul is not saying that you have a brother that's willfully sinning against God and you just ignore it like it's nothing. He said just the opposite of that kind of thing. But he's talking about the fact that we got sincere brothers and sisters who love the Lord and are striving to do right, but have honest differences and honest misunderstandings. And he says we ought to treat that a whole lot different than the other. And we ought to be patient with one another, understanding with one another, uh, recognizing ourselves as servants of one another, and work to create a spirit of unity in that. I think what you said last week was good, too, in that... Um that doesn't mean we just ignore our differences or sweep them under the rug, but we talk about them and discuss them, but yet recognizing that we may both be very sincere and, and yet have differences. Right. In fact, uh, if we didn't get our differences out and discuss them, how could we ever come to an agreement on them? I don't, I don't know how we could. They, they, ha they have to be gotten out. But to me, the reason, uh, another reason for the importance of this, and even understanding salvation in Christ, is that if we really understand salvation in Christ, I think it allows us to get our differences out as brothers and sisters in Christ with a certain feeling of one another and in calm voices and without getting disturbed and all, you can just simply discuss and be patient with one another and go on. Otherwise, in fact, I'm persuaded that maybe one of the reasons that some people don't even want to get into religious discussions where there's differences is because so many times they have seen professing Christians uh, who hollered or shouted at one another or got mad at one another or conducted themselves in a wrong way, and it's just an unpleasant experience for them. Anybody else with any comments or observations on that part? Brother Carl, you feel free to comment now, any, anywhere along here, anybody. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, verse 7 then, and that's a good statement, look at that. After he talks about a spirit of unity, and he says, recognize yourself as a servant of others. Christ didn't please himself, he pleased others. Look at verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Man alive. Now you think about that. When Christ accepted me, I was anything but perfect. And right now, if we're in Christ, then obviously that would say that Christ has accepted us. So if Christ can accept me, now here's it's always been an interesting thing to me among our various denominational groups. We'll look at somebody over there in the other group who's very sincere and loves the Lord, and we will acknowledge his salvation. Uh, you know, that as a generally, if he's sincere and has his trust in the Lord and he's repentant of his sins and whatnot, uh, even though he may not be doing something in a way that we understand, 
most of us will acknowledge the fact that, hey, he can be saved, but we don't want to accept him. And so the groups tend to make a difference. In other words, I'll accept this person who agrees with me on every point, but I won't accept him, even though I believe he might be saved. But look at this. Accept one another, then as Christ accepted you. If Christ has accepted him, why in the world can't I accept him? You know, if, uh, if Christ could accept me when I first became a Christian over 30 years ago and, and knew a fraction of what I feel I understand now, then why in the world, in fact, uh, that if, why couldn't I accept somebody who doesn't know any more than what I knew? Uh, when I when I first became, I mean, when I think of how many things that that I have changed on over the years that I honestly felt I was right on at one time, uh, then if, if Christ, he says, accept one another as Christ accepts you. And so if I can look at that person and say that, hey, uh, really by the fruits, and isn't that the way Jesus said you know one another? I mean, we're worried about church roles and all that good stuff. Christ made it very simple and very obvious. He says, by your, their fruits, you'll know them. The New Testament tells us what the fruits of the Spirit are, the fruits of the flesh. And so that if, if you look at that person and you see the fruits of the Spirit in that person's life and he acknowledges the Lord, just because in his background he has not had maybe some of the advantages you have or maybe some of the disadvantages, whatever it would be, but he differs with you on some doctrines or he's not as studied as you are, uh, that that he still, Paul is saying, should be accepted. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, that uh, Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian and Seventh-day Adventist and the Church of Christ, that we all, have, and I, yeah, we all have certain things in common, despite our difference in doctrines on various areas, uh, that most of us within these various groups have this common belief in the inspiration of the Bible and salvation in Christ, um, a godly life, and I'm not sweeping the other under the rug. I think that every bit ought to be studied. In fact, I might get it all out in the open and, and, and have us study the thing. But we ought to accept one another and, and not just look at, at anybody looking that, that I'm just a little bit of cut above because I have a better understanding of this particular doctrine. And I think that's what happens. I mean, admit, we sometimes admit, well, they're saved, but on the other hand, we just don't feel as close to him uh, or want to accept him in the same way as this person that more perfectly agrees with us on, on some of these points here. Any other comments on that? Actually, if you think about it, if, if this person that you acknowledge as being sincere and all and yet differs with you on some point, the best way to reach him and get him to see whatever point you're right on is to accept him and to and to try and be a, a positive influence and have some conversation with him. I mean, that's just the only only way the only way it's going to work. So the the very thing we would should we want to do we can't do if we're not willing to accept the other person. Uh, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. And his emphasis all through here is Christ was a servant. We ought to be servants. Reminds me of John 13, where Jesus got down and washed feet and said, If I, your Lord and Master, you know, you also. Ought. And, and the, the emphasis there that we are here to serve. I know that uh, uh, one of the things that, that over the years that, uh, that I have got so disturbed on in the church, you know, as we work for the church and everything like that, is that the, so many people shop for a church that can serve them. In fact, we have people looking for churches just like people shop for groceries. In other words, they're looking for a group that is going to be there for them or is providing certain needs and things like that rather than looking for a place where they can serve and, and do some good. Uh, there are certain members in the church that always need or are wanting to be served in some way, but it's like they never mature and grow to the point they think that, hey, the kingdom is about serving. You know, it's not, uh, it's not just about being served. It's about actually serving. And if Christ is our example, he thought of himself uh, as, a, as a servant for others. And so that one of the great concepts that we need to have in our mind as Christians is that we are servants. 
And, and we shouldn't go around just looking for a church based on the fact that, hey, can this provide this and this thing for me? But it ought to be which situation is going to give me the greatest opportunity to, to serve God. And actually, the one that comes up short may be the one that we're, where we need to be uh, to, to give us the greatest opportunity to do something positive for the Lord. But, but anyway, whatever the cause, the emphasis ought to be on servitude. All right, then uh, he uh, puts a lot of emphasis to here. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And notice how he quotes one Old Testament scripture after another. Uh, I will praise you among the Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Verse, verse uh, uh, 9, 10, 11. Uh, the Gentiles will hope in him. Verse 12. All of those quotes from the Old Testament. Paul is making it clear. This concept of God being a God of all people and not of the Jews, this isn't new to the New Testament. Uh, all, God's always been the God of all people. Now, the, the, the Jews may have had a misunderstanding, but Paul is driving them, hey, this isn't something brand new. Look at what, look at what David said and the prophets and all, uh, that God has always been the, the God of, of everyone. And uh, he refers to himself then as uh, a minister to the Gentiles in verse 16. And where does he make the statement here about this being a mystery, uh, was a mystery that's now revealed, let me see, 15th or 16th chapter. Uh, oh, here it is. Turn over to the last chapter, verse uh, chapter 16. Verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings. Notice now, made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations may believe and obey him. Uh, <clears throat> a mystery is something when you have a certain amount of facts but you don't have all the facts. You don't have an understanding of all of, uh, of all of the fact that God was eventually going to wind up with a people composed of people from all over the world, all nations, was uttered in the prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and, and all the prophets. The promise to Abraham was that that his seed would bless all the families of the earth, uh, not just one group of people, but all the all the families of the earth would be blessed would be blessed through his seed. And all the way through there, there's the fact that all the Gentiles would, would, would be blessed through that. It was a, the Jews got so caught up, they were a called people for a special reason. It wasn't a God forgot about everybody else. In fact, go look at uh, Jonah preaching to Nineveh. Uh, and that God, God definitely was concerned about those pagan people there. Uh, look at the conversation that took place between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel was definitely concerned about Nebuchadnezzar and his soul and making him aware of the true God. Uh, look at Ruth, uh, who, who ended up in, I believe, in the lineage of Jesus, you know, from her Moabitist uh, background. Look at Rahab the harlot. And so God has always been the God of all. It wasn't God that taught this concept that, hey, you are my people and, and you know, I hate everybody else. That was the Jew. Uh, in their misinterpretations uh, that did that they were chosen to reveal the true God to everybody but the end result was to be that everybody would come to know the true God and that everybody would come to be saved in, in the Messiah so it was a mystery to them because they didn't understand it well now the Holy Spirit speaking through the apostles has revealed this great truth and so you see something like Peter uh, after the vision that he's had before going to Cornelius and he gets to thinking about that vision and then he gets to Cornelius and he's been thinking about that obviously all the way on the journey and so then he says now I perceive that God is no respecter of persons see Peter thought he was respecter of persons but in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is acceptable with him Peter had been under the honest misunderstanding that God was a respecter of persons uh, and a lot of Jews under that misunderstanding today, and a lot of Muslims under that misunderstanding, and there may be some Christians with that. But God is not a respecter of persons, but Peter says he's there for everybody that loves righteousness. And Paul will later say that the true seed of Abraham would be those that believe. Uh, 
like it, like Abraham did. And so now Paul is summing up this beautiful letter and talking about a spirit of unity that we can have and making it clear that he's not the least bit ashamed to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's sure not going to apologize to the Jews about it, that their own scriptures contain this. Now, it's interesting as I read that and thought about it too, Barbara and I was listening the other day, and this is said in so many ways, so many times, and then the Christians. He says, now you got to understand that the Muslims are like the Jews. Their God is like the Old Testament eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and vengeance. Whereas and they're hard for us to understand because we've been influenced by the New Testament and forgiveness and all. And, and there's been no telling how many people that have been reverends and right reverends and all that have left this impression that the God of the Old Testament and see these people uh, from a many times a liberal theological background don't look at the Bible as a revelation from God through the Holy Spirit. They look at it not as God revealing to man, but man seeking after God. And so what you have is an evolution in their understanding of God. And, and at first he's this hateful old man that just zaps you every time you turn around, and then, he, then, then you evolve to this understanding of a God of love. But the God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. All the way through there we've got sinners that that repent and God forgives them. Look at David. I don't know how you can sin more than David did. I mean, to commit adultery with another man's wife, have the man put to death to cover it up, and look look at Psalms 51, and, and God forgave David. And and before look at look at how corrupt and wicked that Nineveh was. But when Jonah went in and they repented, God didn't destroy the place. And then with the Israelites, uh, how many times? Uh, when Jeremiah was preaching, even though they had been in idolatry and they had been wicked and ungodly, and he was pleading with those people that no matter how bad you've been, if you'll repent, God will forgive you. God's never... The eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is still true. And forgiveness is still true. What eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? For people who sin and will not repent of it, then perfect justice is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that, that is perfect judgment. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing to apologize about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When somebody sins and will not repent, that God deals with them that way. But any time, even in the Old Testament, where people were willing to repent, God has always been willing to forgive people that would repent. Even before the uh, Jews went in and destroyed the Canaanites in the way that they did, you know, and, and, we, and the liberal theologians make a big thing of of God that sends them in there to wipe out Canaanites. But you read in Genesis 15 that he speaks to Abraham and he says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not full yet. And my people should be slaves, etc. You know, and then after 400 years they've come out. Before God ever sent the Israelites in there to, to do a job on Canaan uh, and punish them, those people had hundreds of years to repent. And, and before he destroyed the world with a flood, Peter said that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God gave him 120 years to repent. And, and Noah and his sons were preaching, and, and it was 120 years there that there was opportunity for repentance. And it was only after there was no repentance. So the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the same in the Old and the New Testament. These same people want to do away with the death penalty. Well, God taught the death penalty in the New Testament. Paul said, if I've done anything worthy of death, then I don't refuse to die. The thief on the cross looked at the other guy and says, we deserve to be here. And he died, and then he repented and went, went, to, paradise, went to paradise. He was executed justly uh, on that situation. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is justice. God has always been just. He was then, he is now. But God has always held out a hand and pleaded with people to repent and been willing to forgive them. So the God of the Old Testament was one of justice for people that would not repent. For anybody that repented, he was always willing to forgive them. In the New Testament, Jesus is the same way. One of justice, I mean, the New Testament speaks of Jesus, on the one hand, offering salvation, but on the other hand, it refers to Jesus as the line of Judah that will judge us. Uh, and Paul said there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. And, and, of course, that, and, and that Jesus, uh, according to the New Testament, is is the one that will judge. And so if anybody's not in Christ, is going to be judged exactly based on their deeds. 
And so Paul here is showing that all of this was written in the Old Testament. There is no difference between God and the Old Testament and God and the New Testament. There's no difference between God's law in the Old Testament and God's law in, in the New Testament. Uh, the difference is in uh, an evolving understanding concerning the need for Christ and salvation in Christ and then the fact that, that, that from within that framework of salvation in Christ there is room to develop and mature and grow as the blood of Christ cleanses you of your sin. Okay, Paul's wrapped up his letter and he's now ready for greetings and in those 15th chapter we have the only book in the entire New Testament that gives that is written specifically for the purpose to give us a full explanation of the Christian system. Remember we said to start with the Galatians, Corinthians, the other letters of Paul were written to churches that he had established in answer to problems that they had. And so if Paul hit on any of this subject in those other letters, it was because they had a problem in that specific area, and he was dealing specifically with it. But in Rome, Paul hasn't even been there yet. And so, and the evidence is that no apostle had been to Rome. And so the end result of no apostle having been to Rome is we get this tremendous letter where he totally explains the Christian system and also ties together in a perfect way grace and law. And, and brings it together in a perfect unified way, ties together the Jewish and Gentile thing, ties together this thing of being uh, unified in Christ, even though we might have some differences. And now having summed all that up, he's ready to end his letter. Anybody have any comments before we give his greetings and end the letter? And because they were smug and complacent and they were holier than thou and they felt they were better than you know, chosen people, better than other nations, better than God, because they failed so miserably. They wouldn't be having this perfect day. You know? They wouldn't be hated of all nations. Right. Had they not failed miserably, 100% humble. In fact, and they're very. They're very smugness, just like it's interesting, the Jew with his respect for the law and everything has been hated in those countries now, and his very smugness and, and self-righteousness now, and thinking that he is a special person, has been part of the cause of, of that kind of thing. And the days of Jesus, uh, I know it's interesting to me in the, the book I just read on Judaism, another book I've read on, recently on the Muslims and all, of the writers pointing out that the Jews, many of them, were actually odious to the Romans and the people of that time. But it was they, because they looked down, their, they didn't just do right, they looked down on their nose at the others. Of course, we see, remember with Jesus, how many times they condemned Jesus because he associated with sinners. And uh, Jesus condemned sin more than anybody could. But he still associated with the sinners and looked with compassion on them and loved them and, and showed concern for them. Well, their idea was not just to condemn sin, but to have absolutely nothing to do with the sinners and to uh, have the attitude of well, the Pharisee that prayed, Lord, you know, I'm not like that guy over there. You know, aren't you, aren't you proud of me? But right, I think the very, and, and when you look over there now, that uh, when we're concerned about Israel getting into this conflict and all, those people have so much pride uh, that even with us doing everything you could possibly do to take him out, nobody needs Israel. There's the possibility of, of really problems if they come in, but it's all we can do to keep them back because a, a few stray missiles come in there and haven't killed anybody or anything yet, but they have got so much pride, you know, that, uh, as far as their own response and their own retaliation. And the end result is there's, there's that constant, and the Muslims the same way, you know. The sad thing is when that guy made that comment, I thought, that's right, the Jews feel that way, the Muslims feel that way. As Christians, you know, we, we don't feel that way. But God forbid, that's not what's taught in the Bible. He's, he's given the, the Bible credit for teaching, you know, the Old Testament credit for teaching what the Jews and the Muslims believe about God, and that's just simply not so. I'm sure you have explained how what is 
going on in the world between the Arabs and the Jews, that uh, the Jews are the descendants of Abraham through the promised child, through Isaac, and the Arabs are descendants of the illegitimate son, Ishmael. And there was hatred between those two brothers, and that hatred has gone on for thousands and thousands of years, and that's true. You look at it, you can help you to appreciate the fact that the only answer is to convert them both to Christ. I mean, that's absolutely the only. As long as Muslims believe the way they do and Jews believe the way they do, I don't see how they can do anything but fight and hate one another. And and the only the only possible end, I think, that the more Jews that we convert to Christ, and the more Muslims that we convert to Christ, will do more than any diplomat or anybody else is able to do in softening that effect. And that'd be the only way. Jesus is the only answer. Okay, in his greetings, uh, I commend you to our servant Phoebe of the church of Centura. Uh, that word servant comes from the Greek word dikanos. Uh, for some reason, we've noted this before, that when it applied to a man, they put deacon. When it was a woman, they put servant. They were both servants. There were female servants as well as male servants in the early church. And Phoebe was a, a servant or a deacon in the church. And he said, receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and give her any help. So she was doing some kind of work in the Lord and, and he was asking them to support her in that effort. Priscilla and Aquila, man and his wife, he referred to as my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And they risked their lives for him. The church in verse 5 that meets in their house, the most common meeting place for churches in that day was in the homes. Uh, remember when he wrote to Philemon, he referred to the church that met in his house. Or he named something about his own relatives. Uh, and they had, Some of them had been in prison with him. He mentions that his relatives had been in Christ before he was. Uh, you know, I wondered when I read that down there about his relatives, you know, being in Christ and all before him, that how much reason that they had done with Paul. And you know Paul heard Stephen's speech. And you wonder how much reasoning through his own family and how much he was thinking about and had on his mind before he had that encounter, you know, with Christ. But he obviously had had a lot of contact with it. Uh, the, uh, let's see, verse 17, to watch out for those that cause divisions and put obstacles in your way contrary to the teaching that they learn. Uh, he makes it clear that there are some people that are not concerned about serving Christ, but are just simply serving their own their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And then he's also made it clear in there that he he's going to come to them. Uh, let's see, verse 24 of chapter 15. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. He wanted to see them when he went to Spain. He says, verse 25, Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in service to the saints there. He was carrying a collection to the needy saints there. Then he was going to go to Spain, and he was going to stop by the church there, and he wanted them to assist him. In other words, that he's asking the church there. I forget, where is it? Do I see that exact verse where he asked them to assist him? Uh, please make a contribution uh, to join me in my struggle. Let's see. Okay, but then he says when he comes to them, oh, there, let's see, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you in past. Oh, right. In verse 24, that you may assist me on my journey after I've enjoyed. And so uh, Paul is writing to the church there. He says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem with this collection for the poor saints. I'm going to Spain. I'm going to pass through Rome and see you. But then he's what he's asking the church there. He wants their support. And so as he went on into the, to Spain on, a, on his journey, he wanted the church at Rome to go ahead and, and support him in that effort and take, take care of his needs. And then uh, he concludes, uh, look at verse 22, I think, is an interesting note. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Paul didn't write this with his own hand. Uh, the evidence is that the only ones that Paul wrote with his own hands were the very short letters. And uh, that he dictated this uh, to Tertius. And by the way, some of the little differences uh, that individuals may note uh, when they get into form criticism and things like that, 
could very well have to do with the fact that these writers, and this is the same with the prophets of the Old Testament, remember Jeremiah dictated to Baruch. They dictated, just like uh, we do the same thing today. Uh, we dictate, and or we even write something, and somebody goes through there and corrects it and whatnot. But they had people that they dictated to, and then they went ahead and wrote that and, and sent that letter out. And, and this one, he had wrote this letter for Paul. Okay. Any observations we end there for tonight? Okay, we'll pause there, and then next week, then, it won't it'll be week after next, uh, that uh, I'll be in Kentucky uh, next Saturday. The Lord willing, but uh, the week after next uh, in our study, we'll start the study. Uh, first, I'll just give an overall view, and I'll try to run off some kind of a an outline on that for uh, to just an overall view of, of the Jew, the Christian, and the uh, Muslim, and we'll look at some things we have in common. I think I know when I studied the Islam. Uh, I was amazed about how many things we have in common. We've got more things in common with the Muslim than we do with the Jew. I mean, he will acknowledge a whole lot more about Jesus than the, the average Jew will. But we'll look at what we have in common and where the differences are and look at Muhammad and get just an overall perspective on that occasion. They both to the Old Testament. Right. All three of us have the Old Testament in common. And uh, the... Islam will accept a lot of the New Testament, more than I, I was surprised at how much that he, that he did accept.